Good morning. My name's Alka, and I'm going to be reading the Bible for you soon. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I am really, really good at is seeing other people's sin and faults and um, issues that they can really fix their life with. But when I turn that same gaze onto myself, I seem to be very spiritually and emotionally challenged. And I am really, really fortunate that I do have some friends and family who um, do speak into my life, and I am thankful for them, even though I don't always show that. So thank you if you are those people. Before I do pray, uh, sorry, do, do read, please pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, um, this is a really confronting um, topic to be thinking about, and I pray that you will quieten our hearts that you will speak through Gary, that we will be open to hearing what you are saying to us and that we will be humble enough to really reflect on that. I ask this in your name. Amen. So this is um, Paul's writing to the Romans and it is, uh, this is directed at those of us who are Christians. So it's from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, page 1131. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we certainly also will be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself as to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, good morning. Uh, as James mentioned, I'm Gary Casalino, and uh, I think I've worked you guys out. Um, I have preached before, but think small church, 80 people that I know. This is like, this is more like a school assembly. So I'm thinking of you guys um, 
there's a bunch of teenagers, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to help. <laughs> but um, welcome to our series on uh, what you want to know. So this series is based on uh, a list of themes that you guys have suggested earlier in the year. And it's my privilege to uh, pick up on the topic of uh, do I need to repent of all sin? Uh, now, I've been just trying to understand, understand uh, James's uh, thought process in inviting me to specifically speak on sin. I mean, he picked up on the dating and the science and religion kind of stuff, but James, what are you trying to say? Handpicked for sin? I've heard that um, Chris Pine's getting heaven, so what's going, <laughs> what's going on? What's going on? Um, but look, yes, resident expert on sin, but I want to put it back on you guys for a second. I want hands up, just by show of hands, hands up in the room if you have a problem with sin. Uh, yes, I see those hands. And if your hand's not up, it should be, because guess what the Bible says? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then there's John 1.8. Uh, 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, we all have a problem with sin. And there's no one that's righteous, not even one. But what even is sin? And what do we do with it as Christians? What's our relationship to it? And I want to start by debunking three common myths about sin. And myth number one, the seven deadly sins. Now, I'm quite sure most of you have heard of this concept. There's been movies about it. The seven deadly sins from 1962. Apple TV has a series on it. There's podcasts on it. Uh, There's uh, a movie, Seven, from 1995. And right back in the 14th century, Dante's Inferno, which is an epic poem, touched on this theme. So there's been a long-running cultural fascination with this concept. It originates from the 4th century, when a monk penned what he called the Eight Evil Thoughts. And but by the 6th century, it had morphed into the Seven Deadly Sins and uh, was formalised in Catholic theology by Pope Gregory I, and then popularised, as we saw, in medieval art and literature. Um, But is this concept even biblical? Well, nowhere in the Bible does it define a list of seven sins as specifically being deadly. Neither does it define a hierarchy of sins before God. I mean, different sins vary in terms of their consequences and the effects on the person and those around them, and the Bible is very clear on that. But before God, all sin is sin. All sins equally separate us from him. 1 John 5.17 says, all wrongdoing is sin. There's no hierarchy. But what does the Bible teach about the relationship between sin and death? Because there is a relationship between the two. Firstly, that death became a thing because of sin. Romans 5.12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. It's Romans 5.12. So the concepts are certainly related. It was through Adam's sin that death entered the world. But there's also another connection between sin and death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Which means that the consequence or the payment for sin, all sin, is death. Death meaning eternal separation from God. So yes, there is a strong connection between sin and death. But are there seven deadly sins? No. All sins are in fact deadly because they all all equally separate us from God. But as we're going to see in a minute, there's hope to overcome both sin and death in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Myth number two. 
that the concept of sin is primarily about sexual sin. Look, the Bible definitely does define what sin is and what sexual sin is and what sexual sin is not, but it doesn't have a preoccupation with it, unlike what's perhaps portrayed as a Christian sort of stereotype or a biblical stereotype. And I did a quick check, and one particular website listed 156 verses on sexual sin in the Bible. But when you consider there's 31,000 verses in the Bible in total, that's around half of 1% of the Bible's content uh, has anything to say at all about sexual sin. So if you've got the Bible and you chopped it up into 200 slices, just one of those slices speaks on this topic. So it's not a a massive theme percentage-wise, but it is a very important theme that we need to pay close attention to. Because despite all sin being equally able to separate us from God, Paul highlights sexual sin as a particular category of sin that has greater consequences for the individuals involved. Because sexual sin unites us sinfully with another person, and this happens on a deeper spiritual level um, than we experience uh, with other forms of sin. But still, it's not an unforgivable sin. Because regardless of the sin, there's always a way back. There's always grace, forgiveness, healing and restoration in the cross. But the concept of sin is much, much, much broader than the notion of sexual sin. And look, at this point, it'd be good to look at a a biblical definition of what sin is. And there are a number of terms that we translate as the word sin in both the Old and New Testament. And the main thrust of these terms are sin is to miss the mark or take a wrong road, deviate from the goal, break relationship with or rebel, or to deliberately do wrong. It's an error in judgment or a blunder, going beyond the norm, active ungodliness, lawlessness, or showing contempt for God's law. But in all these cases, the most defining characteristic of sin is that sin ultimately is a behaviour or attitude that is going against God's standards. You see, God defines what sin is, not man. Therefore, to sin is to do something that is against God. Uh, to miss those marks, those goals, those norms that he has defined. Yes, we can and do sin against each other, but ultimately sin is a category of behaviour that is defined by God and is against God. So a summary of these terms would be that sin is a deviating from a God-given set of goals that defined a correct path, this being a form of rebellion against or showing contempt for God and his laws and a breaking of our relationship with him. You know, ultimately, it's God who sets these standards. You know, we, as Christians, don't define them. In fact, we as Christians are subject to them too. And this is a very important distinction to make because it's important to realise that it's a case of shooting the messenger when Christians are attacked for holding a set of biblical values and beliefs around sin. Myth three, that sin as a concept is old-fashioned and outdated. You know, I know what you're thinking. We're living this post-enlightenment age. We've uh, outgrown this concept of sin. We've got humanism now, and things are so much better. So much so, we're almost on the verge of world peace. No, not really. And and modern modern secular thinking proposes some alternative ways of thinking about humans and our behaviour, viewing those behaviours, both good and bad, as an expression of human need. And as long as those needs are met ethically, it's all okay. But there's a problem with this relative form of ethics where you get to choose. 
It tends to breed a culture where people will do whatever they think they can get away with as long as they can justify it as meeting a need ethically. But there are no absolutes in this view. There's no real limits to human behaviour, no useful independent benchmark for what's ethical or not. Take social Darwinism. Social Darwinism projects Darwin's notion of survival of the, on the, of the fittest onto society as a whole. Uh, it's a type of philosophy that led to events like the Holocaust, and it's dangerous. Because a world without absolutes is like a ship without a compass, ready to run aground on wherever rocks it finds in its way. Social Darwinism, in the words of um, David Gushy, um, opens the door to a moral vision in which mass violence, killing and loss of life, especially of the weakest individuals and species, was simply to be expected and might even need to be encouraged as part of the evolutionary process. And that's a dark concept, isn't it? So in contrast, uh, here's a two-minute clip from Alastair McGrath, Professor of Science of Religion and uh, at Oxford Uni to explain why the Christian concept of sin is such a useful idea. I think the Christian idea that humanity is sinful needs to be rediscovered. And one of the reasons it needs to be rediscovered is it's so obviously right. There is something wrong with us. Why is this world such a mess? It's a real challenge for secular humanists who in effect saying we are rational, we are wonderful, and look at the sort of things we do. Well, that, that's bad people. But the answer is no, those are human beings doing those things. And we have to have a defensible understanding of human nature, which allows us to understand why we aspire to greatness, but very often simply mess things up. If we recover this idea of the sinfulness of humanity, it in effect is saying to us, look, it means we recognize we are damaged, we're broken, we're wounded, we need help. And actually, that makes us much more tolerant. It makes us much more understanding of other people's failure. And if we know we're likely to mess up, we're going to be extra careful about things. I think for me, the Enlightenment had this idea of humanity as a, almost like a rationally perfect human being. But that simply doesn't explain why we mess up so much. If we realize that we are almost flawed to the extent that we do this by nature, then we can begin to address the problem. Recovering the idea of sin is not about going back to some sort of superstitious past. It's simply about recognizing the truth about who we are and making adaptations to the way we think, the way we behave, which are much more realistic than this delusion of humanity as a perfectible being. Okay, some profound stuff there. And look, it's with this understanding of sin in mind that we're going to explore what our relationship with sin is as Christians. Well, the answer is in the book of Romans, which Martin Luther described as the clearest gospel of them all. And the message of Romans is very clear, but it's also very detailed, so it can take some careful study to grasp the depth of it. Look, I'm a complex kind of person, a bit like Shrek, um, like, a, like an onion, I've got layers, and one of those layers that's in the mix is well, there's a, there's a Bible nerd layer in there, sort of mixed in. And when I was at Bible college, I became fascinated with the concept of a part of speech called a conjunction. A conjunction, it's a joining word, like and, but, therefore, so. But the thing about conjunctions is they don't just link ideas, they kind of shape the flow of ideas. So, for example, like, and adds to an idea, but 
sort of uh, defines it uh, or shapes it in a certain way and therefore might show the consequences of what precedes it. And look, I did a, a bit of a, a visual summary of the Book of Romans looking at the conjunctions that Paul uses. And uh, they're, they're highlighted in yellow on that diagram. Chapters one to three, Paul establishes that we're all universally condemned as sinners. There's no exceptions. We're all helplessly lost uh, in sin, both the Jews who have the law, but also the Gentiles without the law. And here's one of those conjunctions, but. But now, and this is Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, there's been this monumental shift in history, but now there's a new way to be made right with God brought by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And if we put our faith in Christ, we move from this state of being lost in sin to being considered righteous before God. And the technical name for this is becoming a regenerate sinner. Yes, we're sinners, but we're sinners who have been made new by their relationship with Christ. And the results of this new relationship with Christ are many. Chapter 5 starts with a therefore. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, and Paul goes on to list results like we have peace with God, we have grace, hope, God's love, and reconciliation with God. Then, chapters 6, 7, and 8, redefine our relationship with sin. Chapter 6, chapter 7, redefines our relationship with the law and the flesh. And chapter 8, redefines our relationship with the spirit. And we're going to narrow the focus just now and look at chapter 6, and in particular, chapter 6, 1 to 14, which was our Bible reading this morning. And we're going to do this under the four headings of reason, reckon, resist, and replace. Because that's a very helpful very practical mnemonic for us as sinners to remember as we tackle this topic of sin. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know? And I just want to pause here because that term no turns up three times in this passage. See, there's three things that Paul wants us to know. You know, you see, Christianity isn't just a heart knowledge kind of thing. We've got to bring our intellect, our mind, our reason into the picture. In other words, there's certain things we've got to get into our heads if we're serious about Christ. And the number one thing to know is that in, the answer, in answer to the question, shall we go on sinning, the answer is an emphatic no. We need to know that as Christians, we are those who have died to sin. This shift in position when we put our faith in Christ is one that redefines our relationship with sin and it's not looking good for sin because our relationship with sin is terminal. It's dead. And the second thing we need to know as Christians is that we have an old self now because it was, has been crucified with Christ. And all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We therefore, were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we know, there's that word again, something else that Paul wants us to know, that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, what's Paul saying here? The first thing I want to address is the question of his reference to baptism. Baptism. 
You see, baptism, as we saw this morning, is an external sign of a potential or, or a real internal reality that signifies you're putting your faith in Christ, moving from being in Christ um, and joining with him. Uh, verse 5 refers to being united with Christ, and we move from uh, this, uh, being the sense of being united and being a part of Christ, sharing in his crucifixion on the cross. It's like our old life was up there with him. And our old self wasn't pretty. It was ruled by sin. Sin was its master. Sin called the shots. But now we have been set free and are no longer slaves to it. There's been a powerful shift in our position. So the second thing we need to know is that our old self that was a slave to sin has been crucified with Christ. And the third thing, there's no turning back. Look at verse 9 and 10. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See, there's no sense of returning for Christ to his old form. He cannot die again. His death was once for all. He has permanently moved from death to a new life that he now lives to God. And we now identify with Christ in the same way. We, like Christ, were dead but are now alive. And there's no turning back. So the things, three things that we need to know to reason, to get into our heads if we are in Christ are that we have an old self that was crucified with him. We are now dead to sin and there's no turning back. Now this leads us to our second part of the mnemonic, reckon. And this is from verse 11. In the same way, count, or in the King James, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now this word count or reckon, it's an interesting term. In the Greek, it's logizomai, and it's the Greek root to our word logic. And it's rightly translated as either count or reckon here because it's got an accounting or a calculating aspect to its meaning. It formally means to establish by calculation or to consider or regard in a specific way. And here Paul is stating that we are now to think things through and calculate or arrive at this, this new view or conclusion about ourselves that we are to regard ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. We are to consider ourselves as having changed in a very practical, very real sense. We are see, to see ourselves differently now. And this reckoning, this new way of seeing ourselves, works itself out in verse 12, where there's another one of these conjunctions. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. In other words, therefore, because of this new reckoning of who we are, we need to resist. You see, we have our part to play in living dead to sin. We're not to succumb to its, uh, its reign. We're not to let it rule over us. We're not to surrender to it, because if we do let it rule us, we're simply obeying its evil desires like a puppet on a string. But that resisting we need to do realistically can take some uh, willpower. Now, there's a reason why I mentioned my grandfather during the announcements. Uh, he had uh, willpower. He's a very determined man. And in his 80s, uh, the doctor said to him, unless he gave up smoking, uh, they weren't uh, willing to operate. At the age of Mid, in his mid-80s at some point, he gets his last packet of cigarettes and puts it up on the mantelpiece and leaves it there in full view and never touches a cigarette again. 
It was sheer willpower. But he'd decided to quit. And sometimes with sin in our lives, we've just got to decide to quit because uh, we're now to count ourselves dead to sin. You know, but sometimes the sin or addiction that we get caught up in feels like it's bigger than we are. It's like it has a life of its own. We don't control it. It controls us. Some Christian counsellors would call these types of sins spiritual strongholds because there's a sense where this thing, whatever it is, has a hold of you and it won't let you go. And this thing that's got a hold of you, you might think that fulfilling its evil desires is bringing you some form of comfort, but you know deep down that ultimately it's only doing you harm. The harm this thing is doing you, it's impossible to treat while you're still uh, actively doing this thing. It's active in your life. It's like being under a shower and you try to dry yourself at the same time. You need to get out from under this thing, turn off the tap, break ties with it, and then you can start to address the damage that it's doing to you. And you can't start to mop up the harm until you've done that. But this all starts with the knowledge that as Christians we're called to be dead to sin. We've got to take that shift on board, that shift in thinking to reckon ourselves as dead to sin and living a new life. We need to resist. And sometimes that can also take some help. So if you're in a situation where you need some help, find a trusted Christian friend or older mentor or someone um, on the ministry team here. You know, but ultimately the good news is that we're called to replace those sins, those things that are doing us harm with things that bring us life. Verse 13, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So instead of doing those things, we need to replace them. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. What does it look like to be brought from, back from death to life? It's a very dramatic contrast. It's even more contrast than the contrast between day and night, if you think about it. We were once dead in the futility, darkness and hopelessness of sin with no future, but now we've been made alive to a whole new life of positive opportunities, a life lived to God. God-directed, God-inspired, and God-endorsed. A new life of possibilities that completely eclipses our old life of sin and whatever it is you thought was so hard to give up at the time, it eclipses it with a God-inspired abundance. What does Paul say in Romans 8.18? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not worth comparing what it is you might have to give up to what God has planned for you. So get excited. God's got better in store. I just want to zoom out again, and one thing I just want to underscore at this point, I want to ask the question, what is it that saves us? And you'll notice Romans 3.21, but now in the shift in history. We're made right with God through our faith in Christ. It's by faith alone that we're saved. See, this struggling with sin that I'm talking about today it's not a struggling with your salvation. Your salvation is purely and utterly an act of grace by God, bought by Christ's sacrifice in the cross. 
Romans 3.23 and 24, sorry, this isn't up on the screen, but all, for all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So it's, it's, it's given freely by God through the sacrifice, purely of what Christ did on the cross. If we had time, we'd look at chapter 7 and then chapter 8. They're big chapters, but just in summary, chapter 7, Paul redefines our, our relationship with the law. He basically says there's nothing wrong with the law. It's what it has to work with that's the problem. It's like holding up a mirror. The mirror's doing its job, but what you see in the mirror is the problem. But then he goes on to talk about a struggle we have uh, with our flesh. Um, we're not going to overcome sin in our own strength. It's a partnering with God's spirit. And ultimately, chapter 8 starts with another one of those therefores. Therefore, there's no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus because we live in the spirit. And I know James is going to be teasing this out um, when he looks at spiritual warfare. But uh, we're under grace now, not the law. We live in the era of God's spirit that gives us victory over the flesh. But ultimately, our salvation is grounded purely in our faith in Christ. Yet we are called to live dead to sin. And it is deadly. But not only is it deadly, it's toxic along the way too. It does damage to people. In medicine, they talk about some substances as being pathogens. A pathogen generates pathology, or in other words, it causes illness. It makes you sick, like a virus or a toxic substance. And I reckon you can rightly describe sin as a pathogen because along the way it wounds people and produces illness. I mentioned too, I've worked as a school chaplain, uh, and look, you don't have to work too long in, uh, in youth work or any caring profession for that matter to see how uh, sin wounds uh, people. You know, from supporting young people through the effects of domestic violence to helping them cope with being bullied and slandered around school and online and tragically even supporting them through things like the homicide of a loved one, even a parent. It's easy to see that sin does damage and the wounds that it inflicts on others. You see, we can be programmed to respond in a certain way because how we've been treated and how we've been wounded by other people's sin directed at us. You may develop a tendency, for example, towards anger. It becomes just how you choose to respond. Or we're programmed to withdraw or turn to a sin for comfort when we feel overwhelmed or threatened. And today I'd just like to draw a distinction between sin and the wounds that sin causes. We can be wounded in sin by sin in such a way that we develop our own tendencies, our own unhealthy, sinful ways of responding, and that can become a downward spiral. Their sin has generated your sinful habits and so on to the next generation and the next generation. And I want you to know that as Christians, we, the church, are called to be a redemptive healing body, a body of believers through whom wounded people like us can find healing through Christ and each other. Regarding Christ's body, the church, its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 26. And then there's Romans 12, 9 to 16. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. 
Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. But be aware, as you do life together as a body, you're dealing with real people, with real wounds. So make allowances for each other's faults. As Paul says, or as I like to say, be pre-disappointed with people. Because when you're dealing with people, if you set your standards too high, you're going to be disappointed. Leave a margin for disappointment in advance, because at some point, each of us will let the other down. But as a body of believers with Christ and his death on the cross as our central focus, and this reckoning of ourselves as dead to sin, demanding a transformation to occur in us, and with each other as this caring body of believers, the church is able to be a mind-blowingly redemptive place, a place where wounds from sin are healed. You know, James wasn't wrong in asking me to preach on sin today, um, and I was joking about it earlier, but ultimately uh, the thing that got me over the line in terms of saying yes to preaching today, um, because I did think twice, (laughs) uh, was that Romans 6 and 7 read like my spiritual biography. It was written 2,000 years ago, but I know it, it resonates with me and it will resonate with you as well. You see, there was a point where God spoke to my reason Uh, There were things that I came to know, things that I had to get into my head. I became convinced that God was real and that, in my case, was calling me to serving him. And from there, there was a process. I came to a new reckoning. I came to a new conclusion about myself that I was to live dead to sin and I had to learn to resist. Resisting sin has to become part of our daily identity as Christians. Sure, sin is still there as an option, that sometimes ensnares us, but through God's grace and God's spirit, we need to repent and turn from sin daily. And God has replaced the sin in me with new life, a set of God-given possibilities that weren't feasible previously. So in answer to the question, do we need to repent of all sin? The answer is an emphatic yes, because with with what God has to offer in exchange, why wouldn't you? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the victory that was won in the cross. Lord, this shifting in history from a period where there was no hope, no hope of being made right before your eyes. We just thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. We just thank you that we can join with him in that sacrifice by putting our faith in him and all this is an act of grace on your part. Lord, there's nothing that we can do to please you. But Lord, as your children, as people who are united in Christ, Lord, we just, we just declare ourselves dead to sin. Lord, we want to have a new reckoning, a new way of thinking of ourselves. Lord, we just look forward to you working in us as individuals and your body through your spirit replacing what's been left behind, that worthless life of sin, with just a future that's God-breathed, God-inspired and anointed by you and your spirit. Lord, we just commit the rest of this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.